All right, today is uh, the week before Pentecost. It is Ascension Sunday, and, and I really want to, I'm going to talk to you today about the Feast of Pentecost. <clears throat> and so I'm going to read to you um, Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, then we're going to skip, and I'm going to read the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. So we can't really talk about Pentecost without uh, looking at uh, the ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days. You know, whenever I'm reading the Bible and I see a time frame, 40 days uh, or a month and a date that's given specific, I always highlight that. So 40 days is something that is important for you to pay attention to. And speaking of things pertaining, so for 40 days, he appeared to them and was speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, And also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered... And when they, when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And the next verse tells us there was in all 120 who were gathered together there. Now let's fast forward to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we have Luke, who is giving this account, and he's writing this uh, to this gentleman named Theophilus, and he's accounting to him all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. 
So Luke records the ascension of Jesus here. And he says in verse 3 that for 40 days Jesus appeared to his disciples and he spoke to them concerning the kingdom. So we have 40 days. Pentecost is not a word that describes a denomination in the Christian faith. Pentecost is a Greek word which basically means 50. And Pentecost is our English word of this Greek word that means 50. Well, where does that come from? Well, it comes from a feast that God gave to the children of Israel in the Old Testament. So let me, um, uh, for instance, in Exodus 23, 15 through 16, it's called the Feast of Harvest. And then in Exodus 34, verse 22, it's called the Feast of Weeks. And it's the Feast of Weeks that celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Then when we go to Leviticus chapter 3, see we're getting more and more detail as we go. Leviticus chapter 23, let's turn over there, hold your place in the book of Acts and let's read Leviticus 23. Because when we read Leviticus 23, we'll understand why we, where we get the, the word Pentecost and why it's referred to as this Greek word that means 50. Leviticus 23 verse 15 says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. So what? let me ask you this. According to the Jewish week, what day was the Sabbath in the Jewish week? Saturday. It was the last day of the week. So I won't buy a calendar that has Monday as the first day of the week. I just won't do it because Monday is not the first day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. You say, well, that's kind of silly, Pastor Jeff. Many calendars today have Monday as the first day of the week, and they list Sunday as the last day of the week, but that's not true. Sunday is the first day of the week, and Saturday is actually the last day of the week, the days of creation. It was on the seventh day that God rested. It's what we call Saturday. It wasn't called Saturdays. The Jews didn't call it Saturday. These are words we get from Roman culture. These were all Roman gods. Thursday, guess who that is? That's Thor's Day. Uh, these are all named after pagan gods. So if you're hung up about having a Christmas tree in your house and you don't want to have anything to do with pagan uh, gods and deities, you better start changing the names of the days of the week on your calendar because they're all about pagan gods. But we just don't seem to have a problem with that. But it's not so much about the name, but it is important that we understand the order. And so here is... Um, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, that's our Sunday, that's the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheave of the wave offering, seven, seven Sabbaths shall be completed, or seven weeks. Count 50 days, that's where Pentecost comes from. So if you're reading a, a, a Greek Old Testament the Greek word was this word that we get our word Pentecost from. You shall 
count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah, and they shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven, and they are the first fruits of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 10. Seven weeks you shall number, and it says you shall keep the feast of weeks. This is the Old Testament feast called the Feast of Harvest, more commonly called the Feast of Weeks. We call it the Feast of Pentecost. So when we come to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and the Bible records for us when the day of Pentecost had fully come, we understand this is the Jewish feast called the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. It was one of three feasts in which all, every male in Israel was commanded to appear before the Lord and he was commanded to not appear empty-handed. So it was, it was the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread, It was the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, and it was the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles, in which every male was commanded to appear before the Lord three times a year. And we're not going to do a teaching on all the feasts today, but, but I want you to understand Pentecost in its contest, or the Feast of Weeks in its contest. So Pentecost is 50 days after the Feast of first fruits. First fruits, according to Leviticus 23.11, is always the first day of the week after the Sabbath, which in Jewish understanding is Sunday. Or the Sabbath is Saturday, so the day after Saturday would be Sunday. That's today. 50 days counted from that Sunday will bring us to the day of Pentecost, which would also be, guess what day? A Sunday. So we know that Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. Not only do do we know that because of, of the record of the Bible, but if you didn't even have the testimony recorded for us of the early church, that they met on the Lord's Day, and they called it the Lord's Day because that was the day that Jesus was resurrected. We also know that Jesus was resurrected on the Jewish Feast of First Fruits. It was when they would take the barley harvest and wave the first sheave of the barley harvest. Fifty days later, they would take the wheat harvest, and they would come and bring two loaves of wheat bread before the Lord as an offering. They'd wave the sheave of the wheat also. But they didn't just bring raw wheat. They brought two baked loaves of bread. And that feast, counting those 50 days, would also occur on a Sunday. So Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, the Feast of first fruits, because first fruits is always the day after the Sabbath of Passover. And then from there, you count seven more Sundays or seven more Sabbaths. That would be Saturdays. And then that day, next day would be your day 50, which would be Pentecost. So Jesus is resurrected on a Sunday. The Spirit of God, what happened on Pentecost as recorded here in the Bible? God poured out his Holy Spirit. He poured out his Holy Spirit on a Sunday. So God gave specific dates of the month for all the other feasts except for two, except for first fruits and except for Pentecost. 
This is recorded for us, so I'm not going to go through it in Leviticus chapter 23. You can read that for yourself. But just to give you a brief, brief outline, Passover is on the 14th day of the first month. Unleavened bread is on the 15th day of the first month. That means you slaughter the Passover lamb on day 14. You, you have unleavened bread on day 15. And then whenever the Sabbath is... The next day after the Sabbath, which is our Sunday, that is the Feast of First Fruits. It just so happened that when Jesus was sacrificed as the Passover lamb and he was buried and he was in the tomb on unleavened bread, he was raised on First Fruits, which was the Sunday after his crucifixion. So First Fruits doesn't give us a specific day of the date of the month, but it gives us a specific day of the month. It's always the day after the Sabbath. Then the next feast in the calendar is Pentecost, and that's 50 days after first fruits. And it just so happens that the day Jesus was resurrected, that Sunday, 50 days later, was also a Sunday that God poured out his Holy Spirit. It doesn't give us a specific day of the month in terms of a date day, but it gives us the day that you count to. It's always the same. Then you go to trumpets in the fall of the year, and that's always on the first day of the seventh month. Then you have atonement, which is always the tenth day of the seventh month. And then you come to tabernacles, which is always which always begins on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. So we have these two feasts, first fruits and Pentecost that don't have specific dates, but they have specific days. So God gave specific days for first fruits and Pentecost. And those specific days, according to the plain reading of the scripture is the day after the weekly Jewish Sabbath, which is our Sunday. So Christ was raised from the dead on a Sunday and the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven on a Sunday. And the resurrection of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit are two events that could not be more important to the establishing and the identity of the Christian church and the Christian faith. I hope you understand this. So I remember I told you, Mark, that 40 days. So Jesus appeared to his disciples and, and spoke of the kingdom and taught about the kingdom for 40 days. And on day 40, guess what happened? Acts records that he ascended to heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, God poured out his spirit. So how many days was there between the ascension and the day of Pentecost? 10 days. So we know the disciples were in the upper room waiting for the promise of the Father for 10 days because Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is raised and for 40 days, he's preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. Then he ascends into heaven and he says, go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. So they go back to Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey on day 40. They go up into the upper room and they stay in that upper room and they're praying and they're fasting until God pours out his spirit. And it says, this is very important, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, where were the disciples of Jesus? It says they were all 
with one accord in one place. That Sunday morning, the disciples of Jesus, which numbered 120, according to the scripture, those disciples were all in one accord in one place on that Sunday morning when God poured out his spirit. So the resurrection and the outpouring are two events that are crucial in defining the Christian faith and the church. Without the resurrection or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there would not be a church and there would be no Christian faith. So it's not incidental that the Holy Spirit was first poured out upon a gathered assembly of believers on a Sunday morning. That's not an accident. It's just not. It's exactly the way God planned it. Now I want you to think about this. We have the date that Passover, Passover has to occur on the 14th of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. The 14th can occur at any time, any day of the week. But it just so happened that God sent Jesus, the Father sent the Son, in a year in which the Passover would occur so that Jesus could be resurrected on a Sunday following his crucifixion. You think that's just a cosmic coincidence? No, it's not. Because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, and I believe Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday because God the Father wanted the church to celebrate the resurrection of his Son not on the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week, because he is the last fruits. He is the first fruits. We're not to give God the last of our increase. The Bible says we're to give God the first of our increase. What is Pentecost? Now, in, according to Jewish tradition, and I've, I've said this before, according to some Jewish traditions, especially the um, uh, those... Um, there's a, a mystical sect of, of Judaism called the, the Kabbalist. Uh, and, and according to the Kabbalist, at the giving of the law at Sinai is really what Pentecost celebrates. But if you go through the Old Testament and you do the math, and God gives you the math, if you do the math, there's no way you can reconcile Pentecost with the giving of the law on Sinai. So that's mythology. It's not sound Bible doctrine. We can make it make sense. I mean, it it does make sense that God poured out his spirit, the living word, the spirit given to us to, to, to illuminate the word, to teach us the word. It's not that that's, you know, we can't make that somehow fit, but we can't make it fit if we do the math of the scripture. The Feast of Pentecost was about the harvest, it was about celebrating the first fruits. It was about giving to God the first fruits. So here is Jesus resurrected on the first, on the feast of first fruits, when the barley harvest, the very first grain that was sown, was reaped. The very first harvest offered to God. Fifty days later, here is the wheat harvest 
And so we see the outpouring of God's spirit on the day of Pentecost and we see what happens. Peter comes down from the upper room. He preaches a sermon. And the Bible says 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. What, what do you call that? I call that a harvest. I mean, God literally brought a harvest. So God poured out his spirit on the assembled church. Now, this is what I really want to focus on. And we're going to talk more about the harvest and more about that next week. But I want to talk about the fact that God poured his spirit out on the assembled church. God gives his spirit to individuals. If you're born again today, if you count yourself a believer, if you profess faith in Christ, the Bible says that when God caused you to be born again, he gave to you his spirit. Every individual that's redeemed by the blood of the lamb has received the spirit of God. So God gives his spirit to individuals and God could have poured out his spirit in any manner, in any place, and on any persons doing any number of things that he wanted or he chose to. But I want you to see what God actually did. God purposefully commanded those believers to wait in Jerusalem to be assembled together so that he could give his spirit to a gathering of believers to signify the role of the church in God's work in the earth. I believe that. The church is so important that God arranged things so that his spirit would not be poured out on a bunch of individuals separated, worshiping God in the beauty of nature, talking about how they don't really need anybody else. They just need just me and God. No, God didn't pour his spirit out on people like that. God poured his spirit out on people that were in one accord, in one place, assembled together. And he did it to show all of his church, all of his people, the significance and the important role that the church plays in the work of God in the earth. God is purposed to work in the earth through the assembly of called out ones. That's what the word church means. It's the Greek word ecclesial. Uh, uh, we call it the, the um, ecclesiastical. It's just a big word that means of the church. We're having an ecclesiastical gathering. We're just saying a bunch of the church is getting together. Ecclesia is a Greek word that literally means the assembly of called out ones. It was a Greek word that was never used in the context that Jesus used it. It was always used in the context of political gatherings or social or civil gatherings because uh, the Greeks didn't have anything like this that, that God created when he sent Jesus to die for our sins. But when Jesus recorded in Matthew's gospel says, upon this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my assembly of called out ones. That's exactly what it is. The church literally means the assembly of called out ones. It, that word paints a picture of people who have come from all over, of all diversities, and they have come and they have assembled together. They have been called out by God and they have been called to assemble together. This is why the Bible calls us a body. How assembled together is your body today? Huh. It's pretty assembled together because you're here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. 
I bet if any one of you would have lost a leg on the way over here, you wouldn't have come to church today. You'd have gone to the emergency room because your body that was assembled has suddenly disassembled. And you can't function with a disassembled body. Guess what? God never purposed for his church to function as a disassembled body. The bride of Christ cannot function as a disassembled body. And I believe to drive that point home to all who call themselves believers, God on purpose poured out his spirit on a gathering of assembled believers on that day of Pentecost, which was the fulfillment of what Israel had celebrated for all of those centuries. They thought they were just celebrating the harvest. But in reality, they were celebrating something much greater than that. The fulfillment of which came on that Sunday, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So the assembling together of God's people has more meaning, more power, and gives more witness to God's glory than we probably know. So we can see the significance of of four things in Pentecost. So as I thought about this Feast of Harvest or Feast of Weeks, I thought about just why do we celebrate a harvest? And when we read the Old Testament scriptures and we see that it paints this picture of going out into the wheat fields and taking the first sheaf and bringing it and waving it before the Lord, but not stopping there, but then taking that wheat and breaking that wheat down and refining that wheat to the point that you bring two finished loaves and present them to the Lord. So let's think about this. Let's think about the harvest. This is what the feast was first called by God in Exodus, the Feast of Harvest. It was a celebration and a commemoration of reaping what was sown from the increase that God brings. Paul writes this in his letter to the Corinthians, some sow, some plant, some water, but God brings the increase. When a farmer plants and a farmer waters, what does he do? He trusts God for the increase. It's not the farmer that makes the wheat grow. It's God that makes the wheat grow. The farmer plants the seed. He waters the seed, but the farmer cannot make the seed grow. It's God that causes that miracle to take place. So we see the reaping of men's souls from the gospel that had been sown into the hearts of men through the preaching of the scriptures. This is what we saw on the day of Pentecost. Peter comes down, he preaches this message. Jesus had been walking around preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom, not just 40 days uh, before his ascension, but for three and a half years. And all of this gospel sowing that had taken place, now we see the first fruits of this harvest take place on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. This is the reaping of men's souls from the gospel that was sown. So we have the harvest and we have the assembly. Remember when Jesus is with the woman at the well and she goes back into town, she tells everybody, come and see a man. And the disciples come back and it says, as they lifted up their eyes, they look and they see these Samaritan, the people from from the village coming to see Jesus. And Jesus says this, behold, the fields are white with harvest. It was a play on words. It wasn't just that there were crops in the field. It was that Jesus saw these people coming. He was talking about the people from that Samaritan village that were coming 
to find out who he was. And he was telling his disciples who were wondering, what on earth are you doing talking to a Samaritan woman? Jesus, don't you know better than that? You're a better rabbi than that. And Jesus says to them, behold, lift your eyes up and see that the fields are white with harvest. And so we have this assembly, the gathering together for the corporate work of the spirit upon the assembling before the uh, for upon the assembly gathering of God's people the gathering together for the corporate work of the spirit upon God's people the laborers that are called to go out into the fields the fields that are ripe with harvest we assemble the laborers assemble so that the spirit can do a work in the hearts of the laborers so that the laborers can be equipped for the work of the ministry or we could call it the work of the harvest. So we assemble together here so that we are equipped to go out into the world and see a harvest reaped through the preaching of the gospel, through the living of the gospel. We assemble together for a work of God to be done in us so that we can go out and have God work through us. This is the assembly or the gathering. This is what we're doing today. This is a major part of what we're doing. The refinement. There is a refinement. So you have these two baked loaves from the grain that was harvested. What? You don't go to the store and buy a bag full of wheat that was just cut from the field. And they don't label that whole wheat bread. So that you come home, you don't put little stalks of wheat in your toaster and then spread butter and jelly on there. No, you have a loaf. Well, where did that loaf come from? Well, there were stalks of wheat with the stems and the chaff and everything. that It was all connected at one point. You cut it out of the field, you gather it together, you put it on a threshing floor, and you thresh out what? The grain. This is the way they did it back in the old days. The way they still do it in some parts of the world. And you, you, you have this winnowing fork, and you have some big flat rock, like a big concrete slab like this, and you got animals walking around treading out the grain, and then you get this winnowing fork, and you, you throw your grain up in the air, and the wind does what? The wind blows the chaff away. And what happens to the grain? It lands back down. And you keep doing that to where you don't have anything left but the little grains. Then you take those little grains, and you do what? You grind them. You refine them. You break it down, and you refine it till you get flour, and then you do what? You mix it all together, and you make your loaf of bread. This is the picture at Pentecost. There's a harvest. There's a gathering. But there is a refinement because God doesn't want to just leave us as the raw material cut out of the field. He's refining us. So we see this picture of refinement all over the scripture. We see it when we talk about a harvest. We see it when we talk about gold or silver and being refined by fire. 
So there's this refinement. Two baked loaves from the grain that was harvested, broken down and refined into flour, were to be presented as an offering to God. From the raw material to refined flour baked into two loaves of leavened bread, presented and offered to the Lord, pictures the process of our sanctification we go through as we are no longer conformed to this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. So you have a harvest, you have a a gathering, you have the refinement, and then you have the offering. So what do you do with that flour that's been refined? You offer it to the Lord. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes this. But brothers, I beg you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship, and that you no longer be conformed to this world, but that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't ever forget this, the good acceptable and perfect will of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the ultimate end of what Jesus did when he came to this earth and died, was buried, was resurrected and ascended. He ascended so that he could pour out his spirit so that he could live in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That your life would be refined by that spirit's work and that you would ultimately be brought before the Father and offered to him in all glory. And that glory would not go to us, that glory goes to him. We are just the raw material that God created and that God takes and turns into something that brings glory to his name. So this is the picture of us as living sacrifices. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God. And this is our reasonable act of worship. This is not to be seen as an extreme act of worship. Do you get this, church? Coming to church, assembling together week in and week out is not an extreme act of worship. Presenting yourself as living sacrifices to the Lord is not an extreme act of worship. The Bible says it is your reasonable act of worship presenting yourself daily regularly to the lord is your reasonable act of worship now the lord the the world might think it's extreme they might say you're too religious you're too radical nobody should love god that much nobody should be that religious will you just let him go ahead and ridicule you and talk down to you because the bible in no way paints us a picture of extreme devotion or extreme worship. It says it's reasonable. It's what's reasonably. It's just like Jesus, when he gives the parable, and he says, when the servant comes in from a long day's work in the field, and he sets the table for the master, and he feeds the master, and he takes care of the master before he sits down to eat and take care of himself, he deserves no thank you. Because he's just doing what is is expected. Jesus says, the master doesn't owe the servant a thank you. That sounds radical to us. I mean, that's so politically incorrect. If you think Jesus was politically correct, please read your Bible again. He was so politically incorrect. That the people who profess to to love Jesus and they criticize the church and say, you guys should be more like Jesus. The, The reality is, if we were really like Jesus... They would really hate us. They would really 
ridicule us. Because Jesus is not even going to give a thank you to the servant who just set his table and fed him his meal. Because it's what was expected. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Now, I'm not saying don't offer thank yous. I'm saying, let's put things in the context that the Bible puts them. Being here today is not an extreme form of worship. The world thinks it is. The Bible says it's very reasonable. Offering yourself to God on a daily basis as a living sacrifice is not an extreme act of worship. It's very reasonable. It's exactly what the Bible expects. And you and I really don't deserve any kudos for it. We don't get extra merit for it because it's just what God expects. It's what we should do with a thankful and a joyful heart. So we are the offering that the Lord most desires and we are to offer ourselves with joy and thanksgiving to the praise of his glory. So you see that the offering is brought from the refinement and the refinement comes from the gathering and the gathering comes from the harvest. So here's this picture that Pentecost presents. And then Paul writes these words in his letter to the Corinthians. So here's this picture of the church that is the temple of God. So Paul teaches the church that the assembled saints are the temple of God. That the assembled saints are the place that the very presence of God dwells. Paul is writing this and these people understand this language that he's using. Though it wasn't in the day of Jesus, there was a time when the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, set behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. And it was where the presence of the Lord dwelt among his people. And God let that Ark pass out of sight and to this day never be recovered. And he did that over four centuries before Jesus was even born. And he did that because he knew that he was sending the true ark, who was his son. And he let them have a temple for 40 more years after the crucifixion of Jesus. But then in 70 AD, God even tore the temple down because he said, I want you to look to the true temple. I want you to look to the true ark. I want you to understand those were shadows, but my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the substance. He is why we celebrate Pentecost. He is why we do everything. He is the object of it all. He is not the shadow. He is the substance. Look to him. Worship him. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 9, he says, For we, we, he's talking to the corporate body, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. He's talking to the church. We can say that to us here today. You are God's field. You are God's building. And in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. He's talking to an assembly of believers. He's writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, you believers who assemble together, do you not know that this assembly is the temple of God? It's the field of God. It's the building of God. God is doing his work in this field, this assembly of people. 
This is why he's writing them, telling them, you need to understand that. Quit fussing, quit fighting, quit dividing, quit bickering. Get your eyes off each other and get them onto Jesus and then look at one another and discern one another from a heart of faith with a correct understanding and begin to appreciate one another instead of what you're doing. Begin building up one another instead of tearing down one another. And then later on in the same letter, that's chapter 3, we come to chapter 6, and Paul teaches the church, same group of people, that your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That your body, in this, in this verse, your body refers to the individuals that make up the corporate body. In chapter 3, you, in chapter 3, refers to the corporate assembly of believers that's called the church. When we get to chapter 6, in verse 19, oh, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own. He paints the picture of both, that the church, both corporately and individually, both as members of the corporate body and as individual members, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's it's not one or the other, it's, it's both. They're both true. So the church, the corporate assembly of believers is the temple of God. Your body, each redeemed individual, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what the scripture teaches us. Pentecost is the day God chose to pour out his spirit on the assembly of believers gathered in that upper room. And that outpouring marks the birth of the New Testament church and the harvest of souls that will continue to be brought in until the consummation of all things. Until Jesus splits the sky wide open and he returns to earth there can be no church listen there can be no church without the corporate expression and witness of God's people who have become the temple of God and this is why the scripture commands us that we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together in Hebrews 10 24 and 25 I don't have time to do it today but if you read the book of Hebrews the writer of Hebrews is going back to the Jewish feast and he's painting a picture of the Jewish Feast of Atonement when the priest would go behind the veil. He'd come out the first time. Then he'd go back and he'd come out a second time. And he's likening that to Jesus who came out the first time to put away sin and he returned the second time in his resurrection to show that God had accepted the atonement, the sacrifice of the perfect lamb. The the symbolism, it's all over the place there. And, And it's in this context that the writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake assembling yourselves together, which is the manner of some. Some who have gone back to the old system who think that by taking animals to the temple, even though they've professed faith in Christ, if they're trusting in an animal over Jesus, there is no longer an atonement for their sins because they've now put their trust in an animal instead of the one and only, the final sacrifice which was made by Jesus Christ. So according to the writer of Hebrews, when we forsake assembling together as the church, we are communicating something about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And we are communicating something about God's plan and purpose for the church through that atoning sacrifice. Whether we understand that or not, we're communicating that. God understands it. Angels understand it. Demons understand it. 
unredeemed men not, might not understand it, but the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people who profess to be redeemed. And he said, if you profess to be redeemed, you need to understand what you're communicating. And it's not a good thing that you're communicating about the atonement of Jesus Christ and the plan that Jesus has for the church. So there is no corporate witness of the church without our individual witness. And there can be no effective individual witness if we are not part of the corporate witness God ordained when he poured out his spirit on the assembled gathering that Sunday morning, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost affirms the church corporately and regularly formed and assembled and sanctified through the individual hearts and minds of the people God has chosen to be the dwelling place of his spirit in the earth. In other words, this corporate body is sanctified as these individual hearts are sanctified. This corporate body is sanctified in spite of the fact that not every individual heart is in the same place. Not every individual is as mature as another might be. But if we are in Christ, we all have the same spirit. We all are of the same life, though we might be. We can look around in the physical we got some here who are just newborns, have not even been weaned off the mother's breast yet, and then we have others who are, well, I'm not gray because I cut all my hair off, but I would be probably if I'd let it grow, but I'm not going to let it grow long enough to see how gray my hair is. So we have everything from little newborns to gray heads in this body. What unifies us is Jesus Christ. What unites us and makes us one is the Spirit of God. Not how much Bible we know, though we should all seek and strive to know as much as we can. Not how conformed we are to Jesus Christ, though we are all being conformed to Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit. But we don't divide because you might be more conformed than I am, or she might be more conformed than she is. That's what the Corinthian church was doing. Paul says, that's nonsense. That's, that's Gentile. That's pagan mentality. You've got to get out of that mentality. Pentecost affirms the church corporately. Pentecost affirms that God has ordained the church to have a central role in his work in the earth as the church gives witness to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We go back to 1 Corinthians. I want to take you there, then we're, we're going to close. I want to read something to you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Hear what the Apostle Paul says about the church. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God 
through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek, seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are saved, or those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. Now here Paul is talking about us. That not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord. I think 1 Corinthians chapter 1, these verses we just read, 18 through 31, answers the critics of the church, both inside and outside, who claim they want nothing to do with the church because man has corrupted it and ruined it. That actually is a statement that is the height of pride and arrogance. That has always been the excuse of those rebellious or selfish or unbelieving who in reality, are all three in one. Do you get that? Those people who say, I don't want anything, whether they're believers or or unbelievers, I don't want anything to do with the church because you fill in the blank. They're selfish, they're rebellious, and they're unbelieving. They're all three. And they are proud and arrogant beyond imagination. God always knew men would, would corrupt Because man is corrupt until he is harvested by the Holy Spirit, gathered and broken down and refined only to be baked into a leavened loaf and offered to the Lord. This is the picture of raw material that God ordains to be harvested and refined. And this process is continual so that our eyes must not be on the weak or the foolish or the base things which are despised. That means us but that our eyes should be on Christ and his powerful spirit working in us to refine us and to conform us to his very same image. God does this on purpose so that no flesh will glory in his presence. The fact that some cannot or will not take their eyes off of man signifies the true condition of their heart and the true need for their repentance and their transformation so that they will put their eyes, their minds, and their hearts back on the only one they should have ever had them on to begin with, and that is back on to Jesus, who is the Lord of glory, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. We are all weak. We are all foolish. We are all base apart from Christ. But Christ is strong, and he is working by his Spirit to make us into that glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. And that bride is a picture of the corporate people of God, better known as the church. 
So do not forsake the church in foolishness that is disguised as wisdom or righteousness or true faith. For true faith does not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are not saved by our assembling, but we are assembled because we are saved. And our assembling gives witness to the one who saved us. He has ordained it as such, and his outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost has given witness to his purpose for the church and the people of God in the earth. So here's my challenge to you as we close out this service, that you would love Christ and so love his bride, the church. Do not forsake her and so do not forsake him. For the two have become one and Christ cannot be separated from his bride. This is why the Bible uses marriage language and teaches us that marriage is not about just a man and a woman in love. Marriage is first and foremost about Christ and his church. And you can no more separate Christ from his church than you are to separate a husband from his wife or a wife from his husband. They have become one. You cannot love Jesus and not love his church. You cannot do it and be a biblical Christian. You will just be deceived, self-deceived. Why am I telling you guys this? You're here. So obviously you've got some notion. I'm telling you this because you need to go out and tell your friends and your family and the people that you work with that they think they're all that because they've rejected the church. No, they're not. They're in rebellion. They're in unbelief. And they are in such pride and arrogance to think that they have the right to reject the church because of the corruption of men. No. God chose corrupt men to make up his church. And he says, keep your eyes on me while I deal with the corruption of men, the foolishness of men, the baseness of men within my bride. I am making for myself a glorious bride. Love the church. This is my challenge. Love Christ. Pray and work and worship together in her midst, in the midst of God's people that are still being refined, still being sanctified, that Christ would be glorified in his church, who is the people of God. We are holy and acceptable, not because we've made ourselves that, but because God calls us that in Jesus Christ and because he is working in us and through us, even in the midst of all the foolish, weak, and base things that are so often despised by ourselves and by others. Let's stand. Christ cannot be separated from his bride that we would love the church and so love Jesus that we would love Jesus and so love the church and fight for her that she would bring glory and honor to her bridegroom father change us by the power of your spirit work in us despite our weakness despite our foolishness and And too often our base thinking and our base ways, we ask God in all humility that you would do a work in us. We confess our sin. We confess our need, our desperate, constant need for your grace. We confess that we cannot change ourselves, but we can surrender to your will. We can surrender to your work and we can surrender to your ways Give to us the grace 
to take our eyes off of foolish men and foolish things and put them on the Lord Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Give us the grace to do that for your glory and your witness in the earth. It's in that name, the name above all names, in the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.